What's up, guys? You're listening to Corrales Radio, and I'm your host, Jeff Godbold from Godbold Exotics. If you haven't had a chance yet, make sure you subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. But before we get into it with our guest, I wanted to let you guys know what makes the show possible, and that's a quick word from our sponsors. First up is none other than Cold-Blooded Cafe, led by Forrest Fanning. He's been a personal friend of mine for years, and i got to tell you guys, if you're looking for a new rodent supplier, maybe you're not happy with the current one, or you're just tired of paying high prices, this is the guy to go to. Use my last name, Godbold, as a coupon code, and he'll give you 10% off your first order. The prices and the quality and the service, it can't be beat. Next up is a homegrown cage maker, Doug Songer, owner of Dragon Haas Caging MFG. You can find him on Facebook. He does great work, and he does custom work. He'll give you any quote. I'm telling you, his cages are top-notch. That's what I keep all my Amazons in, and his cages are awesome. I stake my reputation on it. Next up is an East Coaster, Sea Serpents. You guys know Chris because these guys are the founders of the Hotbox Incubators. You can find them on Facebook or www.seaserpents.com. I'm telling you, their racks are awesome. They're very high quality, and their incubators are bar none, in my opinion, the best in the business. Make sure that you tell them that Corrales Radio sent you, and drop my name, Jeff Godbold, whenever you're talking to Chris. Our next sponsor is none other than NARBC. That's right, the biggest reptile show in the country, Northern American Reptile Breeders Conference. You guys know them because they do multiple shows in Arlington, Texas every year, as well as Tinley Park, Illinois. I'm super stoked to be partnered up with these guys, and it's an honor to have my name attached to them. So make sure that if you're looking to get out, you want to either network or you're looking to get some new reptiles, meet friends, doesn't really matter. It's a great day for the family. And if you're wanting to add some new stuff to your collection, go to the NARBC Support your small local businesses because, hey, that's what the vendors are. I'm telling you, you won't be dissatisfied. It's an enjoyable time the entire day. You can even make a weekend trip out of it. So that's it from our sponsors. I appreciate you guys uh, tuning in thus far. Now let's get to our guests. Bill. Jeff, what's up, man? How are you doing? Good. Good. Uh, sorry about the uh, the confusion. I got thrown out of freak, freaking Facebook like thirty minutes ago, and then that's, I can't, then I can't message you. That's funny. No, it, it's not a big deal at all. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I just, I was like getting a random message uh, from Brian, and he was like, "Hey, uh, Bill needs you to text him. Here's his number." And I yeah. was like, oh, I'll have to, to let him know about this. So I'm not, you know, I, I don't know the, what's the real thing is with uh, what the real deal is with Facebook. What is it? What are people, what is Facebook jail and what are people getting thrown in there for? Just, just well, curious. Well, I just got thrown in there for the first time last week and it's for posting animals for sale. It's illegal to do it by Facebook standards. And so if you post an animal for sale in, on any page, any group, um, then you're subject to a warning, which I got. And then I tried to maneuver around some things like I tried to available and put price in there and all these other little try to avoid the algorithms to get flagged. Um, but I haven't figured it out yet because this is the second time in a week I've been thrown in Facebook jail. 
That's crazy. Second time in a week? Yeah, the first time they threw me in uh, for three days. And uh-huh. I, I, was, I was just out one day. And then they picked up another post that I hadn't even made. I made it before they threw me in Facebook jail the first time. I made it on the same day. Um, and then they go, well, this is your second warning. So you're thrown out for seven days. And if I continue the behavior, they'll just delete my page. So, oh, wow. Um, yeah, I got to be careful from now on. I've tried to be sneaky about it. Like I'll post like all the pictures that are needed for like a normal ad. And then I'll yeah. just say like, um, this is the inf- and I'll give all the information, but I won't. And I'll just say PM me for details. I won't even say like if you're interested or if it's for sale, I'll just say, you know, the sex, you know, pairing was this, this, and this, you know, I'll give a little brief description and then I'll just say, you know, shoot me a PM if you'd like to discuss details or something like that. And I, I haven't gotten dinged with anything, but I don't post that many animals for sale. So I don't know. And, And I don't post that many for sale either. But I think my problem was, is I tried to put price in there, but be cute. Like I'd put, if it was $300, I'd put three space, zero space, zero, like no dollar sign or anything. But evidently that's, that's triggering something too. I know some guys, um, like Gary Schiavino told me he, and from what I've seen on Facebook, he puts a lot of his prices in the comments. And I also, I did this one time and I didn't get any crap for it. Um, instead of using zeros, I used capital O's. So, yeah, and, yep. somebody and, told me that today. And I heard so, that some people have done it with, they put a space between the numbers. I'm like, this shit is so stupid. It's like you have to have a PhD in how to, how to code <laughs> your price so that the, the Facebook police doesn't find out. It's just ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, luckily, I'm on Instagram, too. I actually have more followers on Instagram than I do Facebook friends, but they don't seem to be cracking down at all. You know, you can post whatever you want there. You got to help me with Instagram. I've had one for a while, but I'm terrible about posting stuff on it. It's just not on my radar, but I like it more than Facebook. I hate Facebook. I've gone back and forth about changing my personal page to just a business to a Godbold exotics page so many times. Yeah. And I, and the only reason I don't is because my wife likes to tag me and stuff for like the kids and like trips and stuff. Sure. But I'm like, I'm like, dang it. I don't, I go back and forth. I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm kind of right there with you. I, I like the format of Facebook a lot of times. Cause if you post stuff, you know, people can reply and there's kind of a dialogue and other people pile on Instagram. It's much more, it, it seems just a little bit more cold, but the good thing about Instagram is is I can have 10,000 followers, but not have to follow 10,000 people for them like to see that. my posts. You know, yeah, that's a good thing. I, you know, it's, it's funny. Cause I, um, back when I guess we'll tie this into Condros, I, I'll get to your introduction here in a second, but like I, I just, when I was, I'm not like the biggest tech guy in the world, first of all. And so yeah, me neither. I, I never was that involved in King snake, um, right. on the forums. So really, my first forum forum was um, uh, Condro Web, you know, with Greg Maxwell's yeah. site. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was kind of around the time that I, that I found out about, like, Condros and stuff. So um, that, to me, I've, I've always missed the forums. And I actually started one 
through uh, Yuku. Yuku, isn't that what, it's, yeah. what MVF yeah. is? Yep. Okay. So I started one just that was not all, not, it was more like arboreal encompassing. So it was for like arboreal boas, arboreal pythons, and some of the semi arboreal stuff. Even I, I even threw some of the Candoya species in there. Right. Um, and I couldn't get any traction. Like I had a professional uh, banner made and, and all this stuff. And I couldn't get, I got very, very little traffic. And I prefer that to Facebook because you, yeah, you can still have a conversation, but the information's always archived. It isn't lost after like 48 hours. Of Um, course, of course. So I liked that, but, um, you know, I guess if, if people aren't into that format, it doesn't really matter what I like. (laughs) Well, I I mean, that's exactly right. And and I've had this conversation a hundred times with a thousand different people about how awesome forums are. But when, you know, it comes to cutting nuts, people can just get on and post on Facebook so much easier and quicker. Um, But again, you know, you mentioned the archives and we're very, very lucky that the MVF, um, uh, Jeff Stevens has kept that thing up. And even though the activity's low there, the archives are there, you know, for for decade now. And so, so much information there, in fact, I, I went on there today to research a couple of things that you all uh, wanted me to talk about. And if, if it hadn't been for, for that, you know, the information is just gone. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, I know a lot of the listeners are from all different ages, but I do think it's a little bit of a generational thing. Like my, my kids don't really use Facebook. They use like Snapchat and whatever that is. I don't even know what Snapchat yeah. is. They yep. use Instagram. Um, Snapchat. you're, you're you're considered old if you're using Facebook and, and they, you know, so I, I just think it's probably a generational thing. You know, the the people that are really digging Facebook probably kind of grew up in that time when they're probably a little, you know, a little bit younger than me. I'm obviously younger than you. And, you know, cause I, when I got into reptiles, there really wasn't much internet. Yeah. Right. Period. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. so I, I came from the mindset of kind of having to work a little bit for the information um, as opposed to clicking on an app. I mean, we didn't yep. have cell phones when I, well, we had cell phones. They were just kind of in their infancy. Um, you didn't really want to like, you know, they were ba- basically the size of a briefcase. Right. <laughs> so. well, 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 if Facebook, if Facebook keeps sticking around uh, the reptile hobbyists, um, you know, in, in the groups and all of the, millions of us out there that are participating in Facebook and we find another platform then I don't know. I'm just, I probably just kidding myself and that, that they would have any, you know, recourse about that. But you know, the numbers of, of groups with members in it that have been shut down in the last six months is just insane. Some of these groups, six, 60, 70, 80,000 members and they're just gone in a day. Yeah. And I don't know if there was some lawsuit or something or what triggered all this, but I mean, from a, from a, just an, a pure, pu- purely monetary perspective of advertising and, um, you know, like, you know, if you took at the, the revenue that was accrued through all these small business owners that are really, they make their livings at, at breeding reptiles or live animals. I mean, you'd be shocked. I mean, it, it was pretty yeah. rare 10 years ago, but now it's become much more commonplace for people yep. to, to breed reptiles and, and 
to make a living off of it. So I don't know. That's not really why I brought you on the show, but I thought it was kind of funny that that we <laughs> started off. We started. That. <laughs> yeah. So um, for everybody listening, I, they probably already know who you are, but I figured it, you know, maybe you can give give us all a little bit of an intro, introduction of yourself. Uh, doesn't have to be reptile related, but obviously kind of work the reptiles into it. Um, and, and basically what, what you are keeping right now. Uh, sure. And um, uh, let me first start off by saying thanks for having me on the show. Um, you know, we talked maybe it's been a couple of months now ago about how it would be fun for you to be on Buddy and I show GTP Keeper Radio and um, for a little crossover because we have never gotten outside of the the green tree box with any of our guests. So I thought that was really cool that you came on and we had a little arboreal crossover and uh, now I'm just kind of reciprocating and just wanted to thank, thank you for having me on. Yeah, no problem. Um, I, I, chondros have a soft spot for me. So, you know, I, I like talking about them. I love arboreal reptiles in general. It's not just tree boas. So, um, you know, I've, I, I, have a passion for arboreal pythons and arboreal colubrids as well. Uh, so it's, so it's good to have you on. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, just personally, um, you know, Jeff, I'm a recently retired anesthesiologist. Uh, I practiced for 23 years, uh, in medicine here in, uh, the Dallas area in Texas. And I just this year, you know, was kind of lucky enough that my, uh, hobby propagated into a successful small business uh, about the same time that I was getting completely burned out and frustrated in my medical practice. So um, when the opportunity uh, came about, I, I took it and I, I retired from my medical practice. And, and, and this is what I do uh, all day, every day now. So just feel, feel very blessed for that. That's very cool. I mean, I think that's uh something a lot of people probably talk about doing um but actually taking that plunge and doing it is pretty pretty incredible and i know for me i've always worked in the corporate world you know i've been i've been an employee not an employer um and i this year in february started my own business left that and so i work for myself now and it's been like you a huge blessing um because I do yeah. get to kind of go out and mess around on my snake shed sometimes and, and do things out there that I wouldn't be able to do if I was in the office. Um, and I just like not having a boss. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that too. Um, I always tell people, you know, my circumstance is a little bit different than most. You know, the caveat here is, is you know, I'm still relatively young. I'm 53 years old, but my dependents are out of the house. You know, I don't have any any kids anymore that are on the payroll. And so I'm kind of in that, was in that 10 year period before retirement. Um, but, you know, I, I had, a, you know, all my debt paid off, all my kids taken care of and a nice little nest egg built up. And so it's a little bit different than a, a, a 30 year old guy who, you know, throws the talent and says, I'm going to, I'm just going to breed snakes for a living and has to raise a family and provide all that goes along with that. So I, I'm always very hesitant. I'm very careful to, to tell people that, you know, I think what I do and what people that truly make their living breeding reptiles, um, is, it's a pretty rare thing and it's something great to shoot for, but you know, for God's Be- sakes have, have a plan B. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm 38, but it, I didn't, you know, you when you when you're working with live animals, that's the that's the wild card, you know. Yep. It's it's something that I think a lot of folks miss. They just think, "Oh, you know, I know them. I, I'm a good keeper. I, I, I've produced enough, you know, and I can, you know, make a living at it. But, you know, when you have a full-time job and you produce a little bit on the side, that's a little bit different than that being your, your sole means of income. Yeah, it truly is like kind of having all of your eggs in one basket. You know, I, I just think of all the bad things that could happen. I could have, you know, disease go through my collection or God forbid a fire or market crash. I mean, there's just so many things you don't have any control over uh, in what, you know, in, in doing it full time. And, you know, I just, for me, it's it wouldn't be that huge of an issue other than I wouldn't know what to do with myself if, if something like that happened to me. Um, but you know, if you're trying to take care of a family and if you're trying to, uh, you know, save for the future and all that kind of stuff, man, it's a pretty, it's a pretty tough road to hoe. So before I get into what your collection consists of, did going out kind of, uh, change your, your philosophy on like quarantine and stuff like that? Because obviously you, like you just said, I mean, sick and wipes out your collection. There goes your livelihood. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've always been a little bit paranoid about that. Um, but certainly as my collection has grown and this is, you know, what I do day to day, I've become completely paranoid about it. And uh, I take very few new animals in. Um, and I certainly quarantine. In fact, Jeff, I, I think I may have related to you. I'm, I'm getting ready to move. And part of the reason I'm moving is because I've outgrown the, the little facility that I have here and in my my new facility I have a main room and I have three quarantine rooms oh three wow different quarantine rooms um so you know I'm, I'm just super paranoid about it and so yeah yeah to answer your question it's just it's my collection has, has gone larger I've become even more so that'll be me in a few years when I move back to Florida but um what does your collection consist of like, what are you, what are you working with and what are you, what is your kind of your, I guess is a multi-part question. So what's, what's in your collection and what is like your, your staple, I guess your bread and butter. And yeah. what are the things that you just work with because you like, and you don't really care if you ever breed them. Well, the vast majority of, of my collection are Royal pythons. I mean, I produce probably three to 400 uh, baby uh, ball pythons, Royal pythons every year. Oh, uh, they, they are the kind of the bread and butter, uh, very consistent in production and in sales. And most of the stuff that I produce there is really, uh, you know, all things considered pretty low end. Uh, you know, uh, you're looking at a lot of pets, um, the, you know, the 200 to $500 price point. Um, gotcha. So quantity wise, you know, ball pythons are, you know, what started it for me. I love them every bit as much now as I did 20 plus years ago. They enable me to do things genetically that any of the other species I work with, I can't. And um, so quantity wise, that's what I have. And I enjoy working with them. Um, you know, you brought me on the show to talk about green tree pythons and uh, I've, I've got a, a pretty hearty collection of those. I've got probably 30 adult sub adult green tree pythons and, I know maybe roughly the same number of babies that um, I've, I've held back or I'm holding on to. 
Okay. Uh, I've got um, a handful of carpet pythons. I was big into carpet pythons a decade ago. It was kind of a bridge to me um, before I really focused a lot of uh, a lot of my efforts and in, into green tree pythons. Uh, I, I've got a group of Borneo short tails that um, I enjoy working with. I haven't produced any yet, but I'll probably try this year. And um, and I've got uh, a trio of rough scale pythons, which I was lucky enough to have um, a clutch of those about a month ago. Really super oh, excited. Nice. Super excited about those. Incredible species to work with. Nice. So that's funny because I thought your bread and butter was your carpets. I I knew you as a carpet guy. Yeah. And did and I knew you kept balls, but I didn't. I thought maybe you had a couple racks full of them. I didn't know that you produced them quite on the level that you said you did. So that's interesting. Yeah, um, a decade a decade ago, I would have told you that I had thirty adult carpets, and produced, um, you know. 15 carpet clutches a year, but I've kind of transitioned uh, out of carpet pythons. I still love carpet pythons and I'm um, very good friends with a lot of people in the carpet python community, but I just, I got obsessed with green tree pythons very quickly <laughs> after I obtained, you know, my first couple of animals. Yeah. It's funny. Cause my, my second snake was a coastal carpet. Um, and uh, I was really big into carpets, um, kind of got out of reptiles. I've, I've gotten out of reptiles twice, um, since I first started keeping them, not for very long periods of time, kind of like I sold everything. And then like a year and a half, two years later, um, I got back into it, but it was, uh, you know, I, I loved the, I love the carpet. So now I just have, um, four, uh, um, pure uh, Irangaya or Papuan carpet pythons. Um, I'm not big on crosses. I, I, I do love the gamma stuff that like yeah. th- that stuff that yeah. Martin's John, pop- popping out. Mar- it, Martin and, and John yeah. Vitalia, yeah, originated that stuff. Yeah, they're, they're, that stuff. stuff's really really nice. But um, like you, I kind of when I got into condors, I kind of just took over. I, yeah. I really, I just, I was like, what can I sell? to get me more of these. That was kind of like <laughs> my mindset. Like I'll sell whatever I need to, if I can get more of these. And, and you just, and you just recently got back into green trees, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, so everyone knows. So the, the, the first time I got out of reptiles was um, early two thousands uh, right after uh, not too, too long after nine 11. Um, I got out of it because I was relocating from San Diego back to Florida. Um, and I had a, a, a lot of different types of reptiles and I didn't have any intentions of breeding any of them. I just want, I was just collecting. Sure. Um, so I sold everything. Um, and then got into condros pretty heavy after that, which was, I was only out of it for like a year and a half. Um, and then when I got into condros, I went through a divorce and had a bug come through and wipe out about half the animals. Um, what was left from the divorce. So I had to sell about half of them in the divorce to pay off the X. And then I had to, whatever I kept basically just went South. Gotcha. Um, And I, I don't know what, what it was. Uh, I was also drinking a lot then. So who knows? (laughs) Maybe I I, I probably, I, I I probably should have given them a little more attention in hindsight, but um I wasn't like neg- negligent. I just, 
you know, it's it was hilarious. just a time. It, it was it was just a time in my life where I was were reptiles. preoccupied. Yeah, I was trying. I was trying to rebound on life. That was that was basically it. Awesome. But well, I had I'm some glad- stuff that, that that I lost that I really regretted losing, and it, and it was like one after another. So that's why yeah. I think it was something that went through there because it was like within like every week I had an animal dying. Yep. Yep. So. No. Well, I'm glad you're back. I'm glad you're back in it. Yeah, I got I got a couple biak. Um, I, I I'm we'll probably get into this, but I am I'm hesit I'm scared of some of the selectively bred stuff. So I did get some biak um, babies from um, Ryan Burke uh, that he had picked out that were kind of nice. Yeah. Um, and then I've got a couple sarong babies that are going to be coming that Force Fanning produced. Um, he's oh, one of the sponsors of the show. So I know he is. I, there's a couple, couple, that I, there's probably like four or five people that I would buy from. And there's a few guys that have animals that I'd really like to get something from, but I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just kind of like, I don't think I want to go as big with condros as I did, but I'd like to have like five or six animals and see if I could breed a pair of them or something like that. Yeah, it sounds like you're off to a great start. I mean, I tell people about green trees, you know, just go slow and go easy. Um, yeah. You know, and it sounds like uh, that's what you're doing. And you, you've got a couple great sources. I know those good, I know both those guys very well. Yeah, they're they're good people. And if anyone listening to the show, I think that's one of the probably one of the things you'll probably take out of this this episode is know who you're buying from and make sure you're getting good quality stuff. Um yeah, so, I tell uh, I tell people all the time, Jeff. You know, in, in green trees, you know, you get the right animal from the right person and put it in the right conditions, and ninety nine percent of the time, it's going to be bulletproof. These things yeah. are so hardy now compared to, you know, the imported animals that they were dealing with twenty years ago, and that you know that that was really the reason that I refrained from keeping them for so many years because I was concerned, you know, with, with that and their, their husbandry requirements and, you know, defensive temperament and propensity for illness, all these things, you know, that I had heard that were probably true 20 years ago. Um, it just isn't the case anymore with, with us captive bred animals. Hmm. So what, since you have such a pretty, uh, such a nice group, like what is your, are you focusing on one specific like cross type one specific bloodline with your chondra group or like where's your where's your focus at with those guys you know i i, I know you had um you had a biat guy on a few episodes ago uh brian fisher is that who you yep. had on yep yeah yep. and and i listened to that episode it was a great episode um you know brian um you know his, his and it sounds like your uh tendencies are locality animals and i have locality animals in my collection they're primarily females but my um my breeding goals and my breeding paths have taken me down what what are called designer animals which is a fancy term for you know mutt outcrossed um, locality type animals to be um bred for specific color traits okay the color traits that i have uh, sought to, to go for or high blue and high black. And so that's, you know, most of my, the males in my collection are, are these designer animals that have blue or black genetics. 
And then most of my adult females um, are locality types that were uh, red neos as babies because red neo green trees tend to uh, produce uh, with consistency more high blue and high black animals. So that's kind of where my, my breeding projects have taken me. So you're basically taking a lot of the lines that have been here for a while and you're outcrossing them with locality animals is kind of what I'm getting from that. Yep, exactly with, right. With the focus being on trying to have heavier all red clutches. Right, exactly. I, yeah, yeah the, the clutches that I produce, um, a lot of them are 100% red and the others are 90% red and, and maybe 10% yellow. Okay. And I, it, which is ironic because I, li- I like... I like the yellow babies better than the red as far as, as how they <laughs> that's, look. That's that's like me too, though. I'm, I'm the same way. But, but as adults, um, you kind of gravitate to the red stuff. Yeah. The stuff that were red babies, yeah. Yeah, and if I was into a high yellow project, I would um, probably be much more uh, leaning towards yellow, you know, keeping and maintaining uh, yellow neonates. Um, but because I really, I just like the high blue and the high black. That's just what, you know, it's, it's taken me down that path. I, you know, it's funny cause I had, um, when I was keeping condors, I had so, some stuff that was probably 70 to 80% yellow and it was all, they were all yellow neonates. Mm-hmm. Um, I had some of the OS stuff and yep. I had some stuff from, uh, um, I think the sire's name was splash, which was, yes. uh, uh Gosh, what was his name? Not Andrew. It came from Andrew Ammon. I mean, yeah. But he got it from, I think his last name was Wyatt. Trying to remember. My memory is a little foggy on some of these guys. But anyway, I, I, that was the, that was the path I was going with high yellow stuff. I was trying to do it through yellow babies, not reds. Yeah, it can be, you can do it both ways. I've seen some incredible high yellow animals that were red babies. True. Um, but I would have to say that the majority of, of high yellow animals that I've seen, I mean, come from, come from yellow babies. Yeah. Pretty rare to see a high blue animal that comes from a yellow, um, you know, a high blue designer that comes, comes from yellow. And, and same with the black, the, the highly melanistic stuff. You really only get that with uh, generations of, of red babies. So what, what are some of the lines that you have in your, or I guess – do you guys go off the of lines now? I know back when I was keeping them, it was more like you look at the lineage and not the oh, yeah. specific pairing or, or whatnot. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Lineage is a, is a big deal in, in the green tree world. And, um, you know, the second clutch that I ever produced, um, was in 2014, 2013. Uh, I did my first green tree pairing and it was a, a Rue to a Rue locality type. Okay. And I was successful, got like seven or eight babies and, you know, obviously all yellow and, and enjoyed the experience and, and it was just awesome. And I was kind of hooked the second year, which was that I bred was in 2014. And it just happened to be one of those pairings that, that just kind of every green tree Python wannabe breeder was just able to, to hit on. And um, I, I bred a, a, a mildly melanistic male named Jaeger, which Marshall Mendez produced. And, uh, I bred him to a very green looking Wamina locality type 
female. Wilminas are awesome. Wilminas are Especially for black. Especially for black. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Those and Biocs are like your, your, yeah. Key ingredient. Yeah. A red, (laughs) a red Biac baby uh, throws a lot of black, a lot of blue. Um, and most Wamina locality types are red babies. Yep. Uh, but but she was completely green. Okay. And, and I still and I still have her. And uh, they were successful. And I got a very large clutch. I got twenty three eggs. Holy cow! Yeah, they that's all, huge. It was a big clutch. She's a, she was a big girl. Every single egg went all the way. Every baby hatched. I ended up with twenty red and three yellow. Oh my goodness! Clutch. Wow. And uh, so ecstatic, of course. Um, they were what now I, I look back on as a difficult clutch to establish feeding. I think most of that was just my lack of experience because I'd only had one green tree clutch before. So I ended up losing probably out of the 23, I think I lost eight or nine babies. Oh man. Wow. Which, you know, all things considered isn't, it, you know, isn't, isn't terrible, um, for yeah. kind of a, a second attempt, but, but, but I a lost tough pill to swallow though, tough, on tough your pill side. to swallow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> especially when, you know, the incubation and the hatching went great. Yeah. But, but, but out of the remaining surviving babies, there was one baby that was always kind of special. Uh, it was, uh, it was very dark, uh, almost a dark Brown velvety, looking animal with very reduced pattern yellow diamonds and i knew immediately i was going to keep that one back and i kept several back but that animal fast forward four years later um became very very melanistic i mean he is 90 percent black which is uh incredible incredibly rare in green tree pythons to have that much melanism and i named that animal the sickness and that kind of put me on the map for breeding green tree pythons and uh design you know kind of a uh, i think you could kind of consider him a designer line now because he's produced babies he produced babies last year oh yeah Uh, i know the clutch because i i remember seeing you post them on facebook and i had to pick my jaw up off the floor i didn't know that that was the sickness that you were describing though yeah yeah he was um yeah he just he's just you know like i said it was kind of a a a novice green tree breeders dream come true it's one of those (laughs) things that you know you, you you just you know, would hope would happen one in a million times and it happened to me and I got, you know, just super fortunate that it happened. And, um, so I bred him, uh, I repeated that pairing two years later and, um, I established all the babies in that clutch, which was great. And I have now two animals that, that look very similar to the sickness. Um, they're, yearlings now they're they're not going to be as melanistic as he is but but they're pretty cool looking hmm so it's interesting you said because i was i would think that your first clutch especially being an aru clutch would have been the tough clutch to establish because everybody says they're so placid you know that a lot of times it's hard to get them to eat but that's interesting it it is interesting and what i think a couple of things helped me it was a small clutch. It was like seven babies and the babies were big. I mean, these things came out and I didn't realize it at the time how big they were for baby green trees. Because oh, okay. they, uh, and, and I think, you know, small clutch size, big eggs, they came out and every single one of them ate the first time I attempted to feed them. And so I'm like, this is freaking easy. What are these guys talking about? You know, it's hard to get, 
baby yeah. retrieved eating. Um, but then I had my, my second clutch that was a near disaster. You know, the sickness clutch, 23 babies. The first time I, I fed them three, eight, three of the 23. Oh, wow. So, uh, again, I was relatively inexperienced, large clutch, very small babies, uh, luckily, you know, the, the green tree community is a great community. I had a lot of help. I had help, um, uh, not only just, uh, kind of psychological help and just, you know, do this, do that, do that. But I actually sent a group, six or seven babies, um, up to my good friend, buddy, Buscemi up in Maryland. I just shipped them up and, you know, he helped me get, get those established. And oh. that's a whole, that's a whole nother show that we could have about, about uh, shipping, you know, baby snakes and and having someone else establish them because that that's that's crazy. He he said he opened the box. I, I sent him six snakes, and, he, and these were my worst feeders. They would literally, I'd open the tub, and I'd put a prey at them, and they would run. He got uh-huh. them up there, and he got five of the six to eat in the first day. Wow! And he said, and he said he did nothing. He just he just put them in, set them up, let them perch, offered them food, and they. Five of the six ate the first day. The six ate the second day. I've done. I I had a buddy back in Florida that um, he didn't have to ship anything to me, but he produced some arubiacs. Uh, it was just a biac to an aru cross, and he couldn't get them to eat. He was like, "Dude, I've get like four four out of." He had like a clutch of eleven, so he got like four or five to eat, and the rest of them wouldn't eat. And I said, "Well, I'll come down and get them." And I drove down a couple hours, grabbed them. And it, they were mostly Amazon breeders, so down there and looking at their stuff anyway. And so I brought them back with me, and I had one I had to assist feed two two times. I assist fed it a pinky head, and after that second time, took off, and the other ones took off for me right out the gate. So it's weird yeah. how just relocating them. I don't know. I wonder if it's like a barometric thing, like different parts of the country have di- different barometric pressures that maybe that – maybe kick them in. something yeah uh, or humidity have, or what i don't know i have no idea can't uh, can't figure out but i've heard it i've heard this story told um by countless keepers many times not not just green trees but other species that, that other species that, too. that's happened too so yeah that's interesting so you know you're so you you're pretty much producing chondros every every year but that's that's not really your you're not depending on them for your livelihood. It's just kind of like a pet project that you're or or are well, you? Well, uh, it's more well, of a question. I, I mean, livelihood is difficult because, um, you know, like we talked about earlier, I'm really not dependent on the the revenue to make a gotcha, make a house gotcha. payment or pay for a kid's yeah, college right, or anything like right. that. Um, I've just I've been very consistent in my green tree production. I've produced at least one, one or two clutches every year since 2013. Okay. So although I never expect to produce green trees every year like I do the Royals or whatever, um, I have. And so you know, some of it's fortune and some of it's just sheer numbers and and all the Are other you- stuff that goes along with it. Are you holding multiple back or are you like, what's the odds of you? And also what are the odds of your, of your pairings? Like if you're, are you hitting 50% if you're pairing up four, you're getting, you yeah. know, two clutches maybe out of it or. Yeah. I think 50% is, is, is a good number. Okay. 40, 50, 50%. 
Um, I'm much more conservative with resting females. Okay. Um, you know, after they've laid, uh, I've lost a couple females. The the keeping of green trees has come an amazing way in, you know, it's it, like I said, they're almost, you get the right animal from the right person, put it in the right conditions. They're almost bulletproof. We haven't got quite that way in reproducing them. It still takes a big toll on the females, I think, compared to a lot of other species. Um, gotcha. So, you know, usually I'm, I'm breeding four females, three or four females to produce one or two clutches a year. Gotcha. And, and how many are you holding back? Does it just depend on the pairing, the clutch size? What is it that yeah. goes into that? Yeah, it depends on the pairing, the clutch size. Um, I've never held a yellow baby back. Snob. <laughs> it's, it's not a snob thing to say. It's just, it's just not in my project. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but but the reds, you know, a lot of that depends on how they look as babies. But all things considered, I hold a very few number of my animals back. I mean, I think compared to a lot of uh, green tree keepers. And I think a lot of that is because I, I already have a pretty sizable collection. And I'm just looking, you know, I'm just looking to hold back a handful of babies, uh, you know, with each clutch. So what about the sickness clutch? Cause those sickness, are like all, all awesome. Sickness clutch is interesting. Um, 17 eggs, 17 babies, 15 got established. Um, I sold six the day they hatched and, um, I've got the other nine I'm holding back. And what's interesting about the sickness clutch is for the first time that I think maybe ever a clutch is going to be able to be genetically sex tested um, based on their sheds because I was able to provide Benson Morrill is a, uh, yes, he's a reptile geneticist essentially. Yeah. I know know him. him? Yeah. He's a good friend of mine. He's a good guy. And he, you know, he's been able to do some, uh, sexing based on shed for other species but really just this year if you're able to provide him with the sire and the dam and the grandsire shed with the baby sheds he's able to determine sex which is a game changer in baby green trees because you can't safely sex them um, as babies so you got to go three generations back then you've got to go uh yes you've got to be able to provide a grand grand sire shed and luckily yeah i have that that's awesome now a lot of people probably wouldn't have that no it's, you know, it's, you, it's rare i mean it's rare to have the father and the father's father in your collection yeah i mean that's sticking with a project for for probably over 10 years i mean if you're going three yeah. generations back factoring in how long yeah. it takes for an animal like that to mature yeah um, absolutely but that's that's kind of I think that could be a game changer with a lot of stuff. Um, you know, it I would I would like to see how not to change topic, but like you take stuff like venomous stuff that like it's a little bit more work to to sex something. You know, if you could do it through sheds, sure, I think uh, that would be a huge asset. I'm sure it's the tip of the iceberg, and according to Ben, eventually they're not going to need mother father grandfather sheds you know eventually you're going to be able to just send baby sheds and they're going to tell you you know male or female and you know that's again in the green tree world that's that's massive because not only would that dictate animals that you'd hold back 
But when you're selling the animals, you know, everybody's got a story about, oh, I bought four green trees or all, I've got four males, you know. Um, they're notoriously difficult to sex, even as adults. Um, you've got to have a, quite a bit of experience. Um, and even with the best experience and based on sheds and all that, you can still get fooled. Uh, so I think it's going to be a real game changer. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know what his margin of error is, but if he can get it down to where no, it's, it's not as much of a risk, then. Yeah, he, he's quoted me 98%. Oh, so wow. That's That's a good. lot higher than I thought. Hmm. That's incredible. I, I need to reach back out to him. I haven't talked to him in a while, but I'd be interested to see kind of where that's coming. Cause he, he they actually were, were going to, they wanted to kind of get affiliated with Corrales radio in yeah. some way, but he was waiting for, I guess he's got a couple business partners or something like that with his yeah, company. I, I know. That, I know he does. Yeah. That he wanted to kind of like see where things were headed with, with that, with them first. And, then reach back out but i haven't talked to him in like six months so that's cool that's really cool i did not even know that was that was going down it just shows how much in the dark i've been with the green trees and stuff no that's i mean you know they're they're it's just technology is, is that aspect of it's awesome i would have, i would have had no idea you know yeah yeah and i didn't know that he was a geneticist either yeah Huh, that's that's really cool. So, um, so you're okay. So you're producing, uh, you know, one or two clutches every year, and this has been going on pretty much since 2013. Um, where do you see kind of like the future of your collection headed? Are you kind of like at your max with where, kind of where, where you want your condor group to go, or are you thinking maybe you're just going to expand and keep going from there? You know, what I'd really like to do is I'd like to expand the green tree um, collection and the breeding. I've been to a lot of shows, Jeff, uh, now, especially since I'm doing this full time, um, because that's really uh, how I sell most of the, the ball pythons that I produce. And, and I enjoy oh, it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I love it. it I'm, it's still fresh to me, you know, and I. I still like the energy of, of new keepers and young keepers. And yep. one of my, one of my pet peeves is whenever I've been these shows, there's never green tree pythons there and uh, none that are none that you would ever want to take off somebody's table because they're either, you know, imported or they look terrible. Or they're just destined to die. You, you know, you, you just rarely see somebody with a group of U S captive bred green trees. And that's what I want to do. And so I want to produce, um, some entry level green trees and, you know, and take those and vend those at the show. I mean, it's not a problem, but you know, when you, when you breed and you produce sickness babies, you don't bring those babies to shows. Right. I mean, that, that's yeah. not, that's how they're going to sell. And there's no reason for me to take the risk to bring a group of those um, to the, to the shows that I vend. But if I had some entry level, you know, captive bred green trees. I would just love to take them up there. That's how I can introduce people to green trees and introduce them the right way. And, you know, that's one of my big goals. By entry level, like you talking like three to $500 range, like, is that where you think that kind of be the sweet spot for selling chondras at a show? Not right now. Entry level, I'm talking minimum $500 for okay. a US captive bred baby. Uh, okay. That, that, that would be the lowest. I mean, uh, yeah. That, that's what I consider entry level, which, sorry, know. I've just, I've just been out of it. So <laughs> I, it's I, all, it, it's all kind of, it's not new, but it is a little bit new just because I've been out of the game for a while. 
Yeah. And, um, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned you got some animals from Ryan Burke and you probably got them, you know, probably for a little bit less than $500 and not much. No, yeah. Not much. Right. Not much less. No. Yeah. I mean, I paid more than what I would have thought I would have been paying for them. Right. Right. And, you know, Ryan's the kind of guy who gets that stuff in and he treats, treats it if it's, um, you know, if it needs to be treated for parasites and he gets them established and, uh, you know, you're not wasting your money there, but if you buy, if you buy a green tree Python at a show and it's not from Ryan Burke, you know, you got about a, you got about a 40% chance you're just wasting your money there. Yeah. And there, you've got a short window when that animal's going to go south. I mean, I, I go to the Sacramento show a lot. It's probably the biggest, it is the biggest show in Northern California. And it's, it rivals the last Daytona show I went to, which was in 2008. I mean, it's just a little bit smaller, not much though. Yeah. Um, it's awesome. Yeah, no, it's a great show. It, and I, I think it's just going to continue to blow up. They actually went to a bigger venue this year. And anyway, but as far as chondros go, you've got triple L that's got imports on their table. You've got, you know, um, I think uh, really the only reputable guy that I would buy chondros from at that show would have been Dan Maleri. And he didn't even bend this last time because okay. I yeah. know his, he gets stuff in from the farm and he goes out and goes over there and picks them, you know, uh, from, you know, picks yeah. them out himself. Sure. Um, and for yeah. one, for one locale, it's the same supplier as Bushmaster, if memory serves me right, when I was talking to him. Um, so, and, it, and I bought, I've, I actually, so I actually did a trade with him for a big group of Condros babies at one point, but they were like pre-sold. I had sold them to someone else that wanted them and just basically I was facilitating a deal. Right. And so I, I never really kept them. I mean, shipped them to me. I got like two meals in them. They were, you know, already had been feeding fine for Dan. And so, uh, I just sent them on to their owners and never heard anything back. But um, I would not gamble with anybody else at the Sacramento show. There's no breeders that are producing them and, and holding no. up a table. And I've, no. and I've, I've looked at it for Amazons too, because I've, you know, I've, I'm producing Amazons and I'm like, there's no Am captive born Amazons here. There are just these imports that are just covered with whatever. Yep. Um, yep. So it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's the exact yeah. same thing. Yeah. But unfortunately, people don't know the difference at those shows, and um, I would love to be able to be there and educate them. Yeah, because they see a $500 yellow baby on your table that probably has lineage and parents, and you actually own it and all that stuff, and they're like, well, this guy over here is selling yellow babies for 300 bucks." Yeah, you I know? know, and, and I would love I'm gonna to pay for that guy. <laughs> and know, I would that's... love to tell them the reason why there's a $200 price difference. <laughs> right yeah but you know i think a lot of folks don't care unfortunately that's well they don't care yeah. until it dies or they don't care until yeah. they you know have to take the vet and spend 100 bucks there or so or more um, yeah then they care then they care and then they say well i'm never gonna own a green tree again these things yep. suck they all die yeah and that and that's just not the case it's just it's just not so how do you how do you keep yours? I mean, you're having success with them every year. I mean, um, I know that's kind of a broad topic, and there's a lot of different opinions out there. And I'll be the first to admit that there's more than one way to skin the cat. But like, how do you go about it? What works for you? 
Yeah, that's exactly what you said was I was going to say. There, there's so many different ways to keep these. And if the animal's hardy and well-established, um, you know, a lot of very successful, very experienced keepers, you know, keep these things in just ambient temperature. You know, they just put them in a plastic box and, you know, they just run ambient, maybe an ambient temperature of 80 or 82 during the day and 75 at night. And those things will just, you know, thrive forever. Um, I keep mine with a heat gradient and I do that for a couple different reasons because I'm keeping, you know, I keep, I keep baby chondros in the same rack that I keep my baby ball pythons in. Sure. They're, they're literally that easy to keep. The only difference is, is I put a plastic, um, coat hanger perch in the baby green trees tub, but you know, the temperatures are the same. Uh, my babies, I use, um, belly heat. So you can get like a 90 or 95 degree heat on the bottom of the tub for the, for the ball python. But by the time, you know, you get up to the perch where the green tree is, it's, it's 85, 86, 87. And so that's usually where I keep my babies and then the ambient temperature in there's, you know, 77, 78 degrees. That's interesting. I think that I, I've always been of the, mindset like i always kept mine with a, a heat gradient like you like i use radiant heat panels for my adults and st- mm-hmm. i did have back heat that i used to use for the babies but uh the ones i have now i have them in their own standalone tubs and i've got some of those um heat mats that reptile basic cells cells you don't have to plug them into a, a yeah. thermostat i've used that on many many standalone tubs so i people got... yeah for people that just have a single animal that's a great option so, yeah, so I have two, and they're too big for hatchling tubs, the two that I have. They're, they're kind of like, they're, I think they're just under 100 grams, so may, I guess you probably could keep them in there, but I've got them in some 15-quart, um, maybe they're a little bigger than 15-quart, but they're lidded, and yeah. they're taller, and I've got uh, multiple different perches going different ways with um, coat hangers. I, I'm a firm believer in, in thinner is better even as they get up through a little bit more size on them, they still are going to use that thinner size. Right. And, and so mine do that. And I think it's more of like a, I think it's more of, I think even though I've got the heat mats kind of taped to different places, I think it's more of a, of a, just a ambient now at this point, because I, I don't, it doesn't, they're not like sitting on the perch ever right up next to the heat. Yeah. They're kind of farther away. And as you know, if, if you were like the temp gun, the perch, right against that heat mat, right against the tub, it's going to be a good temperature. But you get an inch away or two inches away, and now all of a sudden you're ambient. Because oh, I've, they, I've they, temp gunned the animals. Okay. I don't even temp gun, I don't even temp gun, the, I, I temp gun the animals. I don't temp gun anything else. Okay. So like, I'm, I'm, I'm temp gunning, I've temp gunned my Biox at 81 and 82 degrees. And they're three-fourths of the way they're not all all the way on the other side of the tub but they're they're more than halfway yeah what's amazing about them is is that is the lower temperatures that that you can keep them at and that's one of the big uh, i think mistakes that uh new keepers keep green trees they keep them too warm um you know if you keep an animal for the hot spot especially an adult greater than 85 or 86 uh that's that's getting too hot for the animal and I used to think, oh, whatever you do, don't miss them. You know, that, mm-hmm. that was what I used to think. And I know that there's probably some folks that may feel that way. And it could have to do with geography. But 
I go in there with a with a garden sprayer, and I just mm-hmm. spray the shit out of that tub with the animal, everything. Everything gets wet. Yeah. And I will let it dry completely out, and those animals shed. They eat fine. I don't hear any gurgling or anything like that. So whatever, you know, I'm doing things a little bit differently than when I used to keep them, and it seems to be working. Now my sample size is smaller, but, you know, it works, you know, well, fix it, you know. Well, well, we could do, you know, an entire show, and in our show, we do it almost every time we – we we have a guest on the show you we could spend the entire show discussing hydration and humidity <laughs> and what what i've discovered in a nutshell is this is the bottom line after hosting our show for six years now is that you know you want enough humidity in the tub that the snake is having consistent good sheds and every animal in every environment whether you know you're living in colorado or maryland or texas or california and every enclosure that you keep it in those three things the animal your natural environment and the enclosure keeping it in all those are going to dictate how much humidity you're going to have to provide and they're all going to be different and you're just going to have to discover what works best for you in your circumstance So, you know, a more modern theory of keeping is that you spray less, that if you provide, you know, a big water dish, fresh water, they're able to hydrate themselves. You know, some people say, I never spray my my chondro. Well, if I never sprayed my chondro, every single one of them would have a bad shed every time. So what works best for me in Texas, you know, isn't necessarily going to work best um, for somebody in Florida or California. So, right. You know, well, it's just hard to dish out like, okay, this is the secret formula to, to, to have your chondro well hydrated and have good sheds because there is not one. Well, the thing that's kind of interesting for me is my last time keeping chondros was in a very completely polar opposite climate. Northern California, it only rains up here in Sacramento. It rains maybe November, December till, you know, March. And then, you know, it, it's not most of the year, there's no rain. In fact, everything turns brown, you know, during yeah. the summertime and stuff. So it's very dry. Well, when I lived in, in Florida, you know, you'd have torrential downpours every afternoon. And right. so it was, you know, I was, I was scared. I was keeping my cages too humid. Whereas now it's the opposite of that. I'm trying to, you know, I'm using, you know, in, in my adult cages, I, I don't have any adult chondros, but my adult Amazons, I use like a cork bark, something that's kind of going to hold the, the humidity a little bit better because um, that's the same issue with my amazons is if i don't if i don't spray or anything like that then i i have issues with shedding but i think the other thing that's helped is feeding animals when they're wet, feeding prey items after they've been thawed not drying them off like a lot of people yeah. want to dry that dry i let the water i i feed them soaking wet because i feel like that extra water helps with the hydration of the animal and eventually it it translates to a good shed but yeah for for sure i mean i listen to your comments i I was just going to make two points one is i think there there needs to be a drying out period with your animal um you know you can't keep them wet you can't keep them 90 percent humidity 24 7 there needs to be a cycle of wet and dry and what that cycle is is dependent on all the things we that we discussed um 
But secondly, I absolutely am a big proponent of feeding wet food. All of my chondros get fed, you know, sopping wet, just as literally as wet as I can get it, um, warm, you know, in, in warm water. That's, that's what they eat. And I, I certainly think that helps with the hydration. Yeah. And I guess like for me, I have to, I have to miss, even with that, I have to miss probably, I'd say twice a week, you yeah. know, where it's a good mist. Um, on weeks that I'm super busy, sometimes I only get in there once, but I make sure that if I'm going in there to mist, I'm going to, I'm going to get everything wet. And then by the, cause I know I'm not going to be able to get back out there and, and do all that until it's dry again. You well, know, I'll tell but, you, uh, my regimen is very similar. I typically mist two days a week and I, and I saturate substrate two days a week. And by that, okay. I mean, you know, I keep either, I keep my adults on either um, newspaper or uh, puppy pads. Oh, yeah. I used to use those. I forgot about the puppy pads. <laughs> and, I, and so I will, like, let's say I change their water every three or four days. Well, on water changing day, that water gets poured on the substrate, the old water, and then the new water goes in the bowl. Okay. How do you do your perching? Do you do like uh, natural or do you use thin or PVC? What what goes uh, into that? I, yeah, I'm a completely uh, like basic, uh, sterile kind of um, setup. Uh, and that's just for ease of the animals for me. And uh, so I think the most important thing about perches is that, is that they're removable. Um, okay. You, you have to have a perch system where you can get in and get the perch out and, and not have to pull the animal, whether you decide to use natural or PVC. Um, sure. You know, you just want to make sure that it's in there. It's well secured. The perch doesn't rotate, you know, the animals yeah. on it and that you can take it out. Other than that, I think it's just totally dependent on aesthetic, what you like. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think it's a good idea to, because I've got some animals that like thicker perches, some that like thinner uh, you know, I, I don't think that's, you have to overthink that too much. Are you, are you typically waiting to, so are you feeding like every week? Do you feed like two every two weeks? And, and also like, how are you approaching, um, females that are going to be cycled into the breeding rotation? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think with green trees, it's, I think most experienced people will tell you to forget about a feeding cycle during most parts of the year. Um, I think like I talked about earlier, most people keep them too warm and feed them too much. That would be, you know, the two biggest mistake beginner keepers keep. So other than babies that I'm on a pretty regimented every seven day schedule, my adults um, are all over the place. I never feed them more than once a week. They usually go, if I just had to throw a number out there, it'd be every two weeks. Okay. Um, males, sometimes longer. I might go three weeks or a month before I, I feed a male. He's got to really be hunting uh, for me to feed a male. Um, females, obviously, especially breeding females, they're all over the place. Um, I will feed them, um, obviously, after they've, they've laid and they're back on feed. I may feed them once a week, small meals, you know, for a couple of months to get their breeding size, uh, breeding weight back on. Um, you know, if I'm getting ready to, 
to breed a female again, I'm going to free feed her a little bit more frequently, uh, prior to the breeding, because part of my cycling, uh, includes dropping temperature and also decreasing uh, their feeding. So I want them to have a nice full body, uh, statue before I begin, you know, breeding. But if I'm just keeping a green tree, the, the best advice I would be is feed it inconsistently and, and make it really beg for it. <laughs> make them work for their food, man. Make them beg. Yeah. That's kind of what my wife does for me. She knows I won't cook. <laughs> hey, you give your wife a break. She's been through a lot. I know, right? Yeah, she she's she needs a medal. She does. A for being married to me and, and B for all that she's had to go through this past month. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I, I get that. Like, I feel like um, one of the things I used to do is if I had – if I saw my animals just sitting on a perch all the time and they were pretty much sedentary, then I knew that it wasn't time to feed. It was more like I wanted to see them cruising around or at least have them S-curve and caudal luring. And at least if they're doing that, then it lets me think, okay, they're putting in some effort. They're hunting. They're actively seeking out something. And they're not just waiting for me to come, like, put it, you know, touch their nose with it. Absolutely. So that, that's when I would feed. And I, I, think I, I think I fed my males too much, but I think I was spot on with my females because I, I fed my – I fed um, – I fed my males kind of on the same regimen that I was feeding my females. And I feel like that was, now I look back at, it, I think I probably fed them too much. Well, but I, my, I mean, it depends on if my subadult females aren't getting fed any more heavily than, you know, than my males. It's just when they enter that breeding size and that breeding cycle, that's when I'll, I'll maybe alter their feeding depending on the time of year and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess I know some folks have talked about during the winter time when they're, you know, I guess it depends on if you just go off of ambient temps in your room. They will cut out feeding um, almost completely. I mean, they'll still offer a little bit here and there. Very small prey items pretty infrequently. Um, yeah, you know, or a I'm, lot of times they'll just do it for you. You know, it's not uncommon for a male to, you know, to go off go off feed in the winter months. Uh, you know, it's not coming at all. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, at what age do you feel like you said, I know you said you're a little, um, over conservative with, uh, uh, pairing your females up after they've laid a clutch. So you don't like to go every year. Are, are you also more in the line of thought that, you know, Hey, I don't think I'm going to try it three and a half years. I think I'm going to wait till four over four years to breed a female males. I know it's not as big of a deal, but yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I consider myself pretty conservative, although I will breed a female back to back. If she's a, a, a old, you know, a larger, well-established female that's put her, put her weight back on. Um, I don't have any problem breeding those females back to back. Uh, but I've got some that just seem to take, longer to uh you know to get that weight back on and i i really want them to be absolutely perfect before i'll put them back into a breeding program um but uh, age wise in, in a, um, an age and not a weight guy so i don't i don't care what their weight is uh but i'm pretty much a stickler on five years for a female oh um, five years okay. five uh, I, some people I, I know will breed at four and will have success. It's usually a very small clutch, and you usually have to rest the female 
um, the following year, but your chances of running into problems with egg bound and infertile eggs at four years to me, is just not worth the risk of just waiting another year. And I don't care if that female's, you know, 500 grams or 1500 grams when she's five years old, I'm going to breed her as long as she's otherwise healthy. Well, based off the, the you've, you've had some pretty big clutches. Um, I'm thinking, you know, I, I think that anything over 10 eggs for a green tree python is pretty, you're, you've done pretty good um, because they're not a, they're not a huge animal. You know? No, no. So, um, I mean, I know there are some, you know, exceptions to the rule, but um, so, you know, you're okay. I'm, I'm just trying to paint a picture for the, for the listeners of how you keep them. And, you know, it's, I'm sure it's probably the same thing you guys get. I get it a lot with, Amazons, you know, they just think that they're bitey, wild-caught animals that, you know, aren't worth the hassle. Um, and so I don't want people that are listening to this thinking of maybe getting some chondros, thinking that they've got this massive hurdle that they have to get over before they can successfully keep them. Yeah, you know, that's, um, it's interesting. One of the things that we wanted to talk about that we haven't yet is uh, GTP Keeper Radio, right? And right. I got, yeah. I got involved in that. And really, that is the whole was the whole um, premise behind why uh, Buddy Bashemi, who is my co-host, wanted to to start um, a podcast about green trees. Um, and it's it's the reason that I didn't get a green tree for the first ten or twelve years that I kept snakes. It's because I thought they were bitey and they were high maintenance. They were hard to take care of. They you know they were going to die, impossible to breed. All those reasons and. Um, you know, once some of my uh, trusted carpet friends convinced me otherwise that if you get the right animal from the right person, that they're, you know, they're just like keeping ball pythons or carpet pythons. And I, so I took the leap and I figured it out for myself. And, you know, that, that's kind of the mission of our radio show is to let people know that, uh, first of all, imported animals, imported adult animals, are completely different from U.S. captive bred animals. It's like taking a domestic dog and comparing it to a wild African dog. That's the difference in these species. And so, right. you know, that, that, that's, that's the message we're trying to get out. And I say U.S. captive bred, and I don't mean that it has to be bred in the U.S. I mean, European or I say U.S. captive bred because a lot of people will sell animals as being captive bred under the guise of being, well, yeah, they were captively bred in Indonesia and then brought over here, but the vast majority of those babies are not uh, farm bred. They're actually imported. And even the ones that are farm bred come over here with a host of potential problems. And that's due to the water source in Indonesia and what they're establishing those babies on, which is usually lizards and that those can cause parasite problems. So um, not, not issues that can't be overcome, but they need to be addressed. So how is the, uh, how, I mean, I was going to get into the GTP keeper radio part, but I was going to kind of save that towards the end, but since you've already brought it up, how has that, um, affected you as a keeper based on, I mean, this would be a better question if you kept chondros prior to it, <laughs> but uh, you said you kind of got into them at the same time you became the host. So, well, I was I, wondering. I, I, yeah, that, no, that's a good question. Um, and I actually had kept chondros before 
um, before getting in, into GT Keeper Radio. But I'll tell you, if you want to, if you want to learn um, and you want to become very proficient with animals very quickly, then co-host a radio show about them, right? I mean, the the guests that we've had on our show have been unbelievable. You still there, Jeff? Yeah, I'm there. Sorry, my wife called me. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. It, 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 I don't know why it, it cut you out. So oh, that's kind of none. No problem. How's she no, doing? She's fine. I just had to tell her, hey, I'm still on the show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, sorry, go back. So you were saying well, before it cut out that. Um, well, well, that just that I had I had um, kept green tree pythons before doing the show, but I was a young keeper. Um, I think I had actually just produced that first clutch of a ruse um, before beginning the show. Um, and, and the whole premise of the show was, you know, I met my co-host, Buddy Bashemi at the 2013 ICAST, the International Collective yeah. Arboreal Symposium. Are, are you familiar with that at all? Oh, I'm familiar. Okay. I wanted to do it. I wanted well, to go to it. <laughs> Well, Buddy was one of the organizers of that event and to this day really remains the pinnacle in like green tree, python and arboreal get togethers, at least in my mind. Sure. I mean, you know, it featured legends in the in the uh, green tree community. You know, it was there to essentially um, give thanks to Rico, Rico Walder, Greg Maxwell, uh, Trooper Walsh and Eugene Bissett. Those were the four guys that were kind of honored there and the collection of people that were there was was just incredible and at the time I was kind of relatively well known in the carpet community but I just kind of begun keeping and and trying to and produce green green trees and I met buddy there and he told me he wanted to begin a podcast about green trees and thought it would be cool to have two hosts you know an experienced keeper like himself, but he'd been into green trees for, he's kind of second generation after, after the founders, you know, he'd been keeping them and producing them for, for a long time. Right. And then he wanted, he wanted a newer keeper um, who may think to ask these, these high powered uh, and very experienced guests questions that would appeal to like new green tree keepers. Right. Right. Like buddy would be asking all these incubation techniques and feeding and how to treat a baby prolapse. And I'm like, uh, what humidity do you keep your animals at? You know, just <laughs> so, so we could kind of get both ends of the spectrum. And so that's how uh, GTP Keeper Radio was born. We had our first show in 2014 and um, we're pretty sparse. We, we may do a show every two months. Um, okay. And that's that's based on uh, just scheduling. And, you know, we're, we're just such a narrow focused uh podcast that uh i don't think there's any reason for us to to do it every more than a couple of months you know right has has your has your husbandry evolved in a way or um i guess uh changed at all since you've been a host of, of gtp keeper radio or do you kind of continue and just kind of chalk it up to different methods for different folks uh, i think i've i've certainly tweaked uh, I certainly am keeping them cooler now than I did um, back when I started. Uh, but when I first came in, I was kind of 
a part of the kind of the new revolution of keeping. In other words, um, you know, you didn't have to spray them twice a day. Uh, you didn't feed them rats. Uh, although, you know, I still feed my, my big females rats. Right. I, I was kind of, I was kind of involved. Uh, I kind of w- was introduced in kind of this new, new wave, uh, very subtle differences in keeping, but um so I wouldn't say that my husbandry's changed a lot. It's uh, it's not rocket science uh, by any means to keep these. We've been doing it for decades now. So, have you guys ever thought of um, like show presents? Like I'll re- I'm saying this because these are things that have gone over my mind with Corrales Radio, um, and the radio show for me. I don't know if it is for you, but for me, it's a little bit of an outlet because I do all this other stuff that's non reptile related. And sometimes I just want to kind of talk shop with people. Yeah. So if I just kept it to Corrales, I'd probably burn through guests pretty quick. So I keep that as a mainstay, but I do like to get other folks on to do off topics. Pretty much about 50% of the shows are all off topic. Um, Have you guys thought of doing shows like just to kind of put the word out there and talk to people or is that really not where you want to go with it? Well, you were our first to, oh. to, to do that, to, okay. to, you know, step out of green tree, um, you know, sp- uh, specific topics. And okay. so, yeah, to answer your question, I, I, I think we are, uh, you know, potentially evolving uh, that way and certainly don't have any, um, you know, desire to keep it strictly focused on green trees. I think right now um, our listeners, you know, you are a great guest because there's so much crossover in the, our two uh, species uh there's a lot of similarities um you know our, our listeners tend to have an arboreal theme right and so i, I could certainly see us stre- you know reaching out to other um uh arboreal experts yeah i just was curious because i mean like you guys have you know obviously your main drive is is conros and so people that are listening are primarily listening for that but like i i think there's probably a lot of people out there that are into arboreal species of animals in general they just may like chondros the most and so i guess that's kind of why i was asking i i i am like that you know i like amazons the most but i love chondros and i love a few other species that are arboreal and so Anyway, yeah, that no, was... I, no, that that that's absolutely right. I think it's a good um, it, it's a good assessment, and, and kind of like you said, you know, we can have all the experts on the world come in here, but basically the topics are the same. Um, yeah, you know, and although there's a lot of different ways to keep these and to breed them and to get babies established, you know, I mean, most of it crosses over a lot of similar ground so uh you know I, I i like your idea i like that you know there there's a lot of arboreal venomous um oh i know there that, <laughs> that i would love to you know get some of those folks on on the show and and, and discuss those so. yeah for sure so you um where do you see the show in like a year and where do you see it in like five years? Like, are you guys, do you guys have any changes coming down the pipeline or are you guys wanting to do some things a little bit differently or, um, 
are you have you ever thought of like uh like doing booths at at and doing like a present like an in-person presentation for to put the word out that i'm just kind of like spitballing here i'm just as stuff comes to my mind yeah you know i think as my schedule has freed up and will be freed up even more after the next maybe three or four months um i can foresee all of that happening um buddy's schedule has actually probably gotten busier as mine has gotten slower as far as real world work he's taken on um a new job he's a nurse by profession um he's got he still has his family at home he's he's a busy guy he's sure he's, he's producing a lot of green trees too he you know, he produces on average at, at least three clutches a year. So he's busy. And um, so I, I can't put words in his mouth, but, yeah, I get um, that. you know, I think we've always been a very niche kind of show. You know, I, I kind of look at, uh, at uh, Eric and Owen on Morelli Python radio. And those, those guys are kind of the opposite of us. We're, we're very close with those guys. Uh, I've known those guys and buddy have known those guys for a very long time. And, um, but you know, those guys do a show every week religiously and are all over the place. You know, they, they have all sorts of keepers and all different kind of uh, reptiles. And, you know, I don't think we feel like we need to do that. We're yeah. right now we're, you know, we're, we're okay being pretty, uh, focused um and you know i i think a lot of our education or at least the education efforts that i want to promote aren't going to happen on gtp keeper radio because the listeners already keep green trees you know i, I mean i like doing a show like this i like being guests you know on on other shows and my ultimate goal is is to be able to promote the animals um at reptile expos that's kind of my my goal too. Like, I at first I think the videos for me, like my YouTube channel, I think that was kind of like where my my enjoyment got into it. But that was because I had a camera guy that was filming it all and doing all the editing for me and all that stuff. Oh, I started yeah. doing. I changed. I we kind of our schedules got to where we just couldn't sync up anymore, and I started doing it myself. And I'm like, this is not as much fun anymore. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, right. I, I've kind of had to learn it all myself and I don't have the time to sit down for an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, I enjoy doing the, I, Corrales radio has kind of had a resurgence um, over the last year and a half to where I've kind of gotten a lot of the enjoyment back that Good. I had lost for a little while doing the radio show. And um, you're, you kind of hit the nail on the head The kind of the pinnacle of exposure for the radio show for me would be like what you just said. I would love to promote things in person, like at expos. I'd love to sit and talk shop with people in person. Like I'd love to have animals that are just set up, you know, in display cases, not necessarily, I, I don't even think it would be worth it for me to sell anything just to be able to talk about it, to bring exposure to it and to say, Hey, just so you know, this stuff's out there, you yeah. know? stew on it you know go see if you see anything that catches your eye that's this cool you know at the other tables or, or stuff like that you know like i guess kind of in theme with what you were saying about you know condros and, and expos yeah and i can um i mean i can just tell you firsthand knowledge that's how you really you know change people is 
is by talking to them in person and presenting the animal in person and saying, I can't tell you how many ball Python guys, you know, that I, I do vend these shows and they come up and they go, that's a cool looking green tree, you know? And I go, yeah, you want to hold it? And they're like, what, what do you mean? Hold it? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I just reach in there and pull it out and say here. And they're like, Oh my God, I never thought you could do this. You know, and, the, and these are, you know, these are big green tree breeders. These are, these, these are, I mean, big ball Python breeders. These are guys yeah. that, you know, are all over Facebook and YouTube and they just have no idea. It's the excitement. The excitement's pretty contagious, I've learned. Yeah. You know, with people that they really, you know, if they're talking at a table and they can tell in your facial expressions, you're jazzed. You know, you want to, you want to talk about it. You want to show them you it's not like going to a wholesaler's table where they're just like, yeah, I got this. I got this. I got this. I got this, you know, price is what it is. If you like it, take it. If you don't start shopping yeah. somewhere else, you know, like that, that to me is what really gets people fired up. It's just, you know, like Eric, he likes to use the term passion, you know, like you sitting there being passionate about your condros or being passionate about condros and being passionate about GTP keeper radio it's going to make people want to look into condors more. And it's going to make people want to say, okay, let me go search GTP keeper radio and see what this show's all about. Because I talked to this guy at the show and he was really, really excited about whatever these green tree pythons are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and they just have a natural, just the look of them. People are interested in them. You know, they're, they're interested in the way they look, you know, because they're arboreal. Um, but they just have this stigma about being, you know, defensive, bitey, hard to keep, sick. And, I, you know, everybody knows a green tree python when they see it, or, or most people it shows. You know, they know what it is. That's not the problem. The problem is, is they think it's, it's something that it's not. So I, I have a funny story. Um, so my wife is not a snake person. She's an animal person, but she's not a snake person. Um, and I was at work one day and that shipment I kind of alluded to earlier in the podcast where I was talking about, uh, I bought a bunch of stuff. Um, well, I ended up a shipment also from cam. Um, okay. and they were all locality car. There were some Kofi all Kofi all Biak crosses in there. There was, I had a red Loray in there, which I don't know why I sold that animal. I'm kicking myself <laughs> for it. Um, I had a bunch of stuff in there and my wife texts me while I'm at work. She goes, hey, I think one of them's dead. Because I had to bring the box in just to look at, to open it, make sure everything was okay. okay. Goes, I think one's dead. And I'm like, how do you know that? And I, she sends a picture of it limp over her pin, over a pin. So she actually <laughs> took it out and holding it up on a pin. That thing yeah. is lifeless. And I'm like, crap. Okay, go ahead. Uh, you can either throw it in the freezer outside or just, you know, you can dispose of it however you feel best. Um, send me the picture I'll, or I'll, or I'll download the picture. I now I need to reach out to the guy that shipped it. She goes, well, I'll let you do all that. I'm, I'm not sure I want to do that. And I'm like, okay, well then I'll deal with it when I get home. Okay. So she texts me she goes, Hey, I, I don't know. You know, I just put it in a tub when, cause I already had all the tubs set up for them with the perches and the water bowls and all that stuff. Cause I knew right. they were coming. So right. she goes, I want to put it in your rack. And so she put it in the rack. When I got home from work, she was like, Jeff, 
I think that animal's alive. It's perched, it's, right? It's perched perfect. <laughs> Bill, the, the, the picture she sent me, its mouth was like open and it was like draped across it, like just hanging on a pen, on a blue, yeah. on a blue pen. And that animal fed right out the gate. It was perched fine whenever I, whenever it got, home. I mean, there was nothing. And I'm like, Marissa, you, you saved that animal's life because I got to tell you, I would not have thought that animal was going to live. That's or was alive. And to, to this day, because of that experience, she goes, you keep a lot of stuff, but my favorite are those green snakes. That one I saved. <laughs> the one that, I saved. That one I saved. Whatever those types of snakes are, those are the ones I like the most. That's awesome. So, That's a great story. Yeah. And, and you know, I was kind of humbling because I was like, here I am the expert. And I pretty much got schooled and got humbled that day from my wife, who doesn't know anything, kind of was like, hey, what I took out of that was just like, just because you, you think you know everything doesn't mean you know everything. Just just a little uh, shipping stress, huh? I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad I waited to reach out to Cam until I got home because luckily it was, you know, it wasn't too, I came home at lunch and that animal was within a couple hours doing what it should have been doing. So that's but, crazy. But I think it's like, you know, I mean, I, that's kind of a weird circumstance, but, you know, those types of stories, you people bond with the animals, like when you were talking about letting someone hold one and stuff like that, that emotional bond that that person's going to create right then is what's going to bring them back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I see I see it all the time. I a lot of people are uh, hesitant to have people come into their collection or their, you know view their facility or whatever. And I'm the opposite of that. I, I love to have people over. And a lot of the people that I have over are ball Python people and um, experienced ball Python people a lot of times, but the first time you put a green tree in their hands and they hold a green tree. I mean, I can just, I just take a picture every time of their face because it's just like, it's magical. Yeah. It's, it's cool to, to see that excitement go to somebody that, you know, I mean, you see it all, you feel it all the time, almost to the point where it gets normal. And then you see it on somebody for the first time. And you're like, you know what? This is what it's all about right here. You know, yeah. sometimes we forget about it, but uh, is there, so we're kind of reaching the, the end of the show. Um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about anything specific that maybe you, you know, we haven't touched on yet. Well, we've, we've covered a lot of information. Um not really. I would just um, encourage your listen listeners if um, they want to get more experience or need more information on green trees to uh, reach out to me, reach out to Buddy, uh, subscribe to our podcast, which just like yours, you can find it almost anywhere now. Uh, it's GTP Keeper Radio. Uh, I'm on I'm on Facebook as long as I'm not in Facebook jail. Um, <laughs> As, as Bill Stiegel, um, you can reach me there. Um, I've got, um, got a website, phoenixreptiles.net. And, uh, you know, I just, this is what I do. This, you know, this is my passion now, and, and this is what I do all day. So I'm, I'm happy to, to, to speak with people and, and answer questions. Awesome. Yeah, for anybody that's listening, you guys like Amazon Freebo is because they – 
are arboreal because they're they're unique and because they're polymorphic well that's kind of like chondros too i mean you they're you don't know what you're going to get so if you like amazons for those reasons you probably would like chondros too so yeah just, same just throwing it out there yep same thing you're exactly right the genetics are polymorphic in in green trees with with the exception of uh, albino that's the only um recessive uh genetic mutation in known in green trees everything else is polymorphic which means you know you want you want uh black green trees then try to um breed you know some melanism to some melanism well i'll have to get you guys back on or get you or buddy or both you guys back on for round two because i did want to talk about a couple things but we just don't have the time to get into it um one of them is just kind of the i guess reclassification of green tree pythons i recently learning that there's some subspecies out there and everything and i'd like to talk with um, you guys a little bit more on that yeah i'm i'm recently i'm recently learning that too we probably maybe saw same this some of the same information that just came across recently and uh we'd be happy to address that the i think the article that you're referring to um was published by daniel natouche and he yes. is the most preeminent um green tree expert he he lives and he studies out of australia and i met daniel at the icas uh show initially he was one of the guest presentations there and he's been a member he's been a guest on our show a couple of times so uh be happy to go over any of that with you anytime you'd like we'll have to get you guys on again between now and like christmas time and see if i can kind of pick your brain about that because that's definitely something i'd like to to touch on and it's just some stuff i'd like to learn about myself so yeah it's good stuff uh, between that and, and the uh, different locality types uh yeah that's fun yeah awesome well i really appreciate you coming on and uh tell tell buddy that i i said hey and that uh you know definitely would like to get him on at some point but i totally understand life kind of gets in the way of the hobby sometimes yeah for sure I, I will and it's been my pleasure jeff all right well you have a good one and uh love seeing your seeing your stuff good luck with the breeding season that's coming upon us okay thanks same to you take care bye-bye bye hey don't bail just yet we have one last word from our sponsors so you guys know i'm a big fan of setting yourself apart from the competition i'm a firm believer in branding yourself it pays to be different and to have a consistent professional image so we have our first international sponsor in andrea Lupardini, all the way from Italy. Look him up on Facebook or on the web under Andrea Lupardini Design. He does everything from roll-ups to Facebook banners, logos, business cards. He has some really cool packages that you guys can choose from. Seriously, the guy has an eye for design and he specializes in reptile logos. Hell, he did my logo. I'm telling you guys, look him up. He's done a ton of work. He's got quite a resume. You can see his style, lots of different things to choose from, and it's all 100% custom. You're not going to find your logo with somebody else. He does it exactly how you wanted it. For example, I wanted mine to have a Mayan theme. Well, he took care of me and exceeded my expectations. So I just want to give a quick shout out and a special thanks to all our sponsors. Without you guys, the show wouldn't be possible. And until next time, you've been listening to Corrales Radio.